Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Paul Kesserwani, the founder of another very cool fintech startup called Cushion. With Cushion, you link your cards and bank accounts, and it's bought, finds fees like overdrafts, late fees, ATM fees, and negotiates with the bank to get your money back. I used it for Payclub's accounts, and it got us like 300 bucks back. Before starting Cushion, Paul worked at a company that was acquired by Twitter. We go through his journey and his detailed thought process for founding his own company. Payclub got a couple big investments this week. Well, I should clarify, commitments to invest. We go through this long process of forging a relationship with an an investor, phone calls, lunches, in-office pitches, over and over, until the day finally comes where they say, yeah, this is fantastic, I am in. Old Alex, he would have unanimously just said, whoopee, new Alex is a bit more shrewd. Now we have to start a new process of getting the investor doc signed, which is easy, and actually getting the money into our account, which is not so easy. For whatever reason, after committing to invest, people are not too fast writing the check. That's okay. We've learned how it works now. So yeah, just awesome week for the company. A couple of great groups also came on. So sure, obviously still many of the usual problems startup face, but you have to celebrate the wins and there were multiple wins this week. We're in Vegas now at the Transact Conference. And then next week we're in SF at Finnovate giving a live demo of the app in front of thousands of people. I'll take all of your good thoughts and positive energy for that one. Please send them my way. Okay, let's get into the interview with Paul. Paul, we're sitting in, what's this mall called? We're sitting inside of a Westfield mall, more specifically Bespoke Coworking. Beautiful. Lovely office space. Um, Paul, what's your last name? I'm not going to say it. Kesserwani. Kesserwani. Yep. And you were just telling me that's a Lebanese. Yep. That's a Lebanese last name. Yeah. You grew up in Lebanon? Yeah. I was born here in SF, grew up in Lebanon. Um, I was there from age five to 17 and then moved back here and went to college. And where'd you go to college? Uh, Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. Cal Poly, yeah. But as we were talking before we hit the microphones, you were like a born entrepreneur. It was in your blood. I'm pretty sure it's in my blood, that plus a little bit of crazy. Um, Both my parents were entrepreneurs, started multiple companies in Lebanon, uh, even during the war, during really, really bad times. Um, And being around that, exposed to that 24-7, I think something must have rubbed off on me. And 
even when I was five years old, I told my dad I wanted some money. He said I needed to go work. And so I put out a little table in front of our building and started sell selling, you know, the chocolate Kinder Eggs with the toys. And I was like, some people want the chocolate only. Some people want the toys pre-assembled because they don't have time. And that was my market segmentation. But yeah, so <laughs> it's something I started at a very young age and absolutely love. Yeah. And, uh, and then you go to school. And what do you study in school? Uh, I studied computer engineering at Cal Poly and I was not good at it at all. Um, but my dad kept telling me, get a computer engineering degree, and if you want to be on the business side, everybody will have a lot of respect for the fact that you got that degree, and it'll yeah. open some doors. So he was right. He, totally right. That's really smart. That's good advice. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't anything about computer engineering. I, I wish I did now. I mean, every, everything involves in computer engineering. I wish I knew how to code a little bit. That would be helpful. Instead, I, all I know is business. I mean, it's not a bad thing. Yeah, I definitely am thankful that I have, like, that I know how to code, and in every job I've held... Uh, including this one, the ability to like whip out SQL or Python, do my own analyses and not depend on anybody else has been super helpful. Yeah, SQL's a good one. Okay, so you go to Cal Poly, computer science, and then you don't just start a business right after school, right? Like you do not have an idea or like, I'll go get some experience. What'd your dad say on that one? Yeah, no, it was more of, first of all, you know, traditional Middle Eastern dad was, you know, go get a job at a good, secure company. We come from a com country where anything can be taken from you at any moment. And so the whole idea of financial security was very important. But more importantly, I, um, when I graduated, it was 2008, the financial crisis going down and just landing a job was gonna be difficult enough, let oh, yeah. alone start one with no experience, no network, no money. And so I figured, how about I just immerse myself in tech, gain that experience, and then um, when it's the right time, and if I have the right idea, um, I will then go start something. Love it. I mean, I graduated in 09, same. Yeah, same you felt the pain. Oh yeah, painful. So we were both lucky to get jobs. So what was your first job? So I did the world's least glamorous job or one of the least glamorous jobs. I joined a security company in Redwood City and um, I did cold calling, 100 calls a day. I was helping generate leads for this company and then the qualified ones I'd lob over the fence to the sales team. And I did that for a year. and. I ended up getting promoted to becoming like a technical account manager. They gave me a big book of business and I did really well there. But I had the startup itch very early on. I think it was my first week at my first job. I just stared at these folks in these cubicles. And I remember thinking, I cannot be doing this 20 years from now. And it was, it had been like seven days. And I was like, I cannot do this for the next 10, 20 years of my life. And so in the back of my mind, I was like, Excel at everything you do and just run as quickly as possible towards the path of starting your own company. Mm, excel at everything you do. I like that. You could have just said, I mean, like, fuck this. I don't like this at all. But you, you have this like, mentality of just do a good job at whatever, you, whatever you're going to do. Yep. Uh, I like that. And then I'll, also there's something about cold calling and rejecting, getting rejected all day long. I mean, that's like a lot of what a startup life is, but like that persistence to, to go on. Maybe that, maybe that helped you in, in your career. Built, built up a thicker skin. To be honest with you, I'm so thankful for that first job. I hated every second of it for that full year, but I look back, I grew such thick skin, I could not care less if somebody <laughs> rejected me, shouted at me on the phone, couldn't care less, and that came back and really, like, especially when you're fundraising as an entrepreneur, um, like nothing can phase you once you've been shouted at and called, called people for hundreds like times per day and whatnot, so. <laughs> what about, um in your social life, did it help you like get girls? You could just go from one to one to one to one and get rejected, rejected? Uh, no, I definitely didn't go assembly line style <laughs> trying, to, trying to get girls. Um, I think what I did well at that first company, Qualys, was I was told I need to call 100 people a day 
And that's how it's going to generate leads. And after a few weeks, I realized I hated that system. And so what I did is I became super targeted in who I called. And so I'd make sometimes 15 calls and have a, you know, 10 out of 15 of them would convert. And I think that applied that to the, to my love life as well as instead of going for volume, I was trying to be very targeted and intelligent in my approach. So Working smarter, not harder. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you're doing a good job. You're getting promoted. you got the startup itch. What manifests next? So my thought process was uh, I wasn't very happy in that job and um, I just decided if I'm going to start a company, I should probably go work at an early stage startup and figure out can I really handle it? What is this all about? And watch someone else. And my dad always told me, learn on somebody else's dime. And I felt like that was really good advice. He's like, you're going to make a lot of mistakes even with experience, but if you've never done this before, learn on somebody else's dime. And that's what I did. I ended up joining a very small security company. I was employee number eight, I believe. And um, I was basically their first technical account manager and I did everything there. I'd fly to Seattle to work on a deal with Amazon or Microsoft and come back and work on a marketing video, then write some code for the API endpoints that our engineers didn't have time to do. And I loved it. I loved the chaos, the pace at which we were working and then watched the company grow and eventually we got acquired by Twitter. So. And how long were you at that company for? 18 months. So you're there really early. You're seeing, like, you're doing everything. You're a startup guy. You're an early, early employee. And then it gets acquired. Like, that's a pretty awesome experience. Um, yeah, startup acquisitions look very glamorous on TechCrunch and whatnot. But uh, the reality can definitely be very far from the truth. Um, Twitter did not end up retaining the entire company. So instead of all of us celebrating this acquisition, we were scrambling to help other folks find jobs. But um, I am very thankful that Twitter acquired us. I'm thankful that I got to be a small part, I guess, in Twitter's journey. But uh, you learn a lot watching another company or other founders go through an acquisition. It's pretty, pretty intense. I learned a lot of things. One is when the acquisition seemed like it was imminent, a lot of us didn't know that there was an acquisition potentially happening, but the behavior of the founders and the way that they kept locking themselves up in the rooms started to make us feel like something was going on and then paranoia just kicks in. You're right. like, um, are we about to shut down? Are we running out of money? And so <clears throat> I felt like there could have been a better way to um, keep that at bay while the company continued to function because productivity tanked and some folks even started looking for jobs very early on when they saw that. And then the process drags, and so the performance of the company declines. And let's say we got lucky and the acquisition went through, but what if it didn't, right? Then you have to recover from that and get back on track. Yeah, and or so, maybe it would not go through because the performance declined. Like, well, this isn't what we're, we didn't want to buy this. And yep. Interesting. Okay, so Twitter buys it. Maybe not as glamorous as it's cut out in the press to be, but, uh, but they, you, you had a job there. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm, once again, the, the Twitter acquisition was a positive outcome for the company and the founders and even everyone involved for the most part. Um, and so I joined Twitter. I went through like a technical screening, which is pretty funny. I was being asked to write code on a board and I was like, I'm not applying for an engineering position here, but I'll write some crappy code if you'd like me to. Um, but at the end of the day, I got offered, I guess, two main positions. One was I was technical enough to be a product manager there. Um, and my former, one of the co-founders of that startup was... Uh, in a product position. He said, just come back, come work for me, and we'll continue this journey. But Twitter was kind of early in the monetization phase, and they offered me a role on the revenue operations side. And I thought that was super exciting, is to be involved with Twitter and hypergrowth to figure out how do we scale revenue in the US, internationally, et cetera. And so that's what I ended up doing, because joining that team and eventually building out a team within the revenue operations org and 
helping and contributing Twitter to go from like a few hundred million in revenue to 2.2 billion annually after three years of being in that role. So pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, really, really exciting. And was it, uh, I mean, how'd you find the experience? I mean, is it like really different from working at the small startup or still really fast moving and... In the early days, it was very fast moving. And I was employed, I think, 800 and something. So it wasn't a tiny little startup. But um, everyone was just running like hell. It felt like a large startup, essentially. And it was as we started to prep for the IPO that you could see a massive change. So early on, everybody had access to revenue dashboards and whatever they wanted to see. And as we started to prep for the IPO in 2013, they started to button things up and put in access controls. And once the company went public, you know, every quarter you're exposed and you have to be hitting these targets. And that started to dictate a lot of what we were doing internally. And <clears throat> by the time I left, I, you know, I do love Twitter like deeply. I cherish my years there, but by the end of it, it felt a bit too bureaucratic. Especially, I, I ended my career there as a product manager, and I felt like we'd spend two months talking about a feature rather than building it. And at that point, I kept thinking like we could have built a prototype, got in the hands of users, tested it, collected feedback, iterated, and either killed this product or doubled down on it in the period of which we've just sat in a conference room and talked. Um, and at that point, I really felt like it was time for me to move on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you still probably have this, this entrepreneurial bug. I mean, you're working at great startups, but like, is it time for Paul to raise the sale, go out on his own? I felt like it was, but I was so exhausted because when we got acquired, when Twitter acquired, the company was called Dacient. Um, the acquisition was wrapped up on a Friday and we started at Twitter on a Monday. So we were already working at a startup pace and then you join another hyper growth company. And Twitter at the time had like 50 plus people joining every week. And so by the time I had done four years of that plus a year and a half at the startup, I was so burnt out that I couldn't think really clearly what I wanted to do next. And so when I left Twitter, there was nothing lined up. I just bought a one-way flight to Stockholm and I'm like, I'm gonna go travel a little bit, clear my mind and then come back and figure out the next steps. Oh, interesting. So you, how long do you travel for? Travel for about 10, 11 weeks. And then I started to get severe anxiety because that entrepreneurial side of me is like, hey, this has been fun eating croissants and walking around Paris and whatnot, but it's time, it's time to get to work. So I got on a flight and came back. Interesting. I mean, it's a cool way to live life, just like without a plan, just going through living. But it's, maybe that's like some of the Middle Eastern mentality inside of you, like, yeah, I mean, I hate the philosophy of, you know, you always have to have something lined up. I'm like, you know what, if you have, you know, a wife and kids, if you have financial responsibilities, sure, yes, you should have something lined up so you can provide. But if you don't, it's very hard to think clearly like what you really want when you're just, you go into office, you grind all day, then you come home and you have some other responsibilities and there's no, very little time for you to really think straight. And I just needed that. I needed to be able to sit on a bench in the middle of nowhere I just let my thoughts flow and see where they took me. And where did it take you? Like, what, what came to you after that? Um, I basically, um, while, I was, while I was in Europe, uh, a friend of mine, a friend of a, I should say, the husband of a former coworker of mine reached out saying that him and his dad had started a company, um, a security company, and they wanted to run a few things by me. And I eventually ended up joining them briefly for about six months um, they had not raised any money. They had some amazing security tech. And uh, within that six-month period, we did a lot, but it was not a good mutual fit. And I really, really wanted to start my own thing. I had spent, you know, eight, nine years doing this for other people. And I decided, you know what, I should just step out and start my own company. <clears throat> okay. Yep. And did you have ideas? Like, how did you go through the process of, like, thinking what your business was going to be? 
the the approach was pretty tough because I initially decided I want to do something in the health tech space, and I spent three months aggressively trying a bunch of products, reaching out to you know doctors, etc., getting meetings in hospitals, sitting in the room, listening to the conversations, and after I'd spec'd out my first idea. Well, I should say I had many ideas, but one that had legs. I talked, called my sister, and she's a doctor, and she said to me, she's like, Paul, I love you, you're my brother. My advice to you is if you do not have an MD that is a co-founder or somebody like, very involved, you're not gonna penetrate you know, the healthcare system, especially with this idea. So I advise you to not do this as the, your first sole startup, like, so, like a solo founder startup. And so I thought to myself, she's smart, she's right. And so I kind of went back to the drawing boards. And while this was happening, um, my parents traveled to Lebanon a few times a year, and my dad had wired a bit of money from there to here. And when you're in Lebanon, a lot of websites are not accessible, like IPs are blocked left and right. And so he had some issue that he needed help with, and he got hit with a bunch of wire fees and monthly service charges, and so he asked me to handle it for him. And it was in the process of doing that and then auditing my own finances, because I had spent so much time traveling for Twitter my last year, that I realized I had made a bit of a mess. I thought everything was on auto pay, but I had like $500 in like foreign fees and whatnot. And that led me to doing a bit more of a deep dive on the consumer finance space. And I'm happy to tell you a bit more about like how that went down. But I was not happy with the way the banks treated me as I was dealing through these issues. And I tell them, hey, what, what, can you remove this fee for me? And they'd say, oh, well, you signed that terms of service for that checking account. And I'd respond with, that was 15 years ago. I don't remember everything that was on the terms of service. And... I ended up doing a very deep dive into this space. I downloaded every single app out there, every single consumer finance app, you name it, I have it on my phone. But I also surveyed 500 folks from my Twitter network. I sent them a survey and asked them, like, which apps do you use to manage your money? Do you have a financial advisor? What do they do for you and what's broken? And there's three main takeaways out of many months of research, which were one, there's too many consumer finance apps, each of which are doing very specific you know, niche things like canceling subscriptions or rounding up your spare change, et cetera. Two is because there's so many apps and each of them are sending you alerts to get you to engage, uh, people were just fatigued and stopped opening some of the apps because they're like, this is just annoying. But most importantly, people said, if there's a problem, just fix it for me. Like, don't tell me to go take an action. If I have 20 minutes, I want to spend it with my kid. I want to go to the gym. I don't want to spend it talking to the bank. Um, and that kind of sparked the idea of what I think will be like, the next step function improvement in our space. I mean, I love hearing that. It's this whole, this is why we're talking right now is because FinTech. But uh, it's interesting, like this process of trying to think of an idea and iterate and thinking about medical technology. And maybe you needed the product or, or maybe you didn't. It's like I went to business school with all these people and they're like, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. I'm like, well, what, what's your idea? Like, well, I don't. I have an idea. I just want to be an entrepreneur. Like, I don't know if you can be an entrepreneur for entrepreneur's sake. Like, then this problem hits you. You saw this problem. It was your problem. And you're like, wow, I can, I can solve that. So I don't know if there's a question here, but like, there, 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 there's something along the lines of like, actually feeling the problem. There's definitely something about feeling the problem, but more so um, I researched it to death. I have, I don't know how many hundreds of pages of Google Docs that I've written. I tried to hack the Apple wallet at one point to try to make it do something that it's not designed to do. Um, it was just became very clear with the data, both quantitatively looking through research, but also qualitatively just talking to people that this was a pain point. And if you were busy, if you're not financially educated, if you uh, didn't have the money to spend two grand on a financial advisor, you ha you're left to fend for yourself. And that's why there's so many folks who are like, struggling financially. and. 
by the way, being Lebanese, we negotiate everything. So this falls into the wheelhouse for me <laughs> of what, I'm, what I grew up with. Oh, I love it. Yeah, a little haggling. Yep. Okay, so my bank charges me a few hundred dollars. Your company, I haven't said the name of it. I'll say the name of it, Cushion. I put that on my big account, and it does the negotiating a little haggling for me yep. at the bank. Try to get some of those fees back. Yeah, so I'll give you some context as to even why we started with this product, right? Um, the philosophy here was people are busy. A lot of them, even if you have a financial advisor, if you don't really have the time to follow the plan, you're probably going to go off track. And we wanted to build a service and are building a service to manage your finances for you. And the analogy here is think about a company trying to be successful. They bring in a CFO and the CFO doesn't tell everybody we should do this and that. They go out and negotiate with vendors. They you know, make sure you're reducing waste. Your profits are higher than your losses. And they report back to the CEO of we've done this, we should do this next. And we're trying to build a digital version of that for the consumer to make sure that nothing falls through the cracks. But if we had started off with a website that says, hey, connect all your financial information and we'll manage everything for you, people would have said, who are you? Get away from me, this is terrifying. So we decided let's start with a major pain point and a use case that can help us earn trust and add value very quickly. And the fact that Americans spend $60 billion a year, sorry, yeah, $60 billion a year on bank fees and $140 billion on credit card interest each year, and there was no digital solution to go after that, I felt like that's a very appealing use case. And so we started with that. It seems like a no-brainer to me. This is a terrible problem, got all these fees. I don't really know how to go negotiate them or change them, and so just put on your plugin and boom, it happens. I, I, I used it for, for PayClub's accounts, and you guys got us back a couple hundred dollars. Like, it was the most easy process. Yeah, we just that's exactly what we were going for, is we want people to sign up and then go about their lives, and then the bot to come back and say, hey, here's a couple hundred bucks, I'm gonna go negotiate some more for you in a few weeks, and then every once in a while pop back up, give you a bit more money. Uh, oh, so does that happen? I saw like it said, hey, this is what we feel comfortable negotiating now. You're saying in a couple more weeks it's going to... Yeah, so our system's constantly looking through your finances to find out is there an opportune time now. Like, if you make a big payment on a credit card, if you have a big deposit that came in, or if oh. you just waited for long enough to go by, it then jumps back in and starts to tackle more of your fees. Most of our users, even folks who didn't know they have bank fees, um, they sign up. 93% of folks have fees in the last 90 days, and so... I bought usually gets to work very quickly, starts getting your money back. Wow. So is the future of banking that your company, everyone uses it and it just eliminates all bank fees or do banks start to become more consumer friendly and say, all right, we're going to like stop like nickel and diming all customers on all these fees? Um, I don't know if the things that, you know, there's 10,000 banks and credit unions in the U.S. all competing for, you know, the business of a finite pool of customers. That's why cushion can exist, right? CAC is so high, it's so expensive to acquire a customer for a bank that they have to play ball and give some money back. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, will they become forgiving? Maybe eventually, but challenger banks are already doing that. You know, like, like banks like Chime are trying to charge the minimal amount of fees possible. And so will traditional banks follow suit? We shall find out. But I, I think of ourselves more of the layer on top of banking. It doesn't matter where you bank. That, that's just a container where the money is going to sit. Um, we want to make sure that whether you bank with you know, Bank of America or Wells Fargo, whoever, whoever it is, um, the decisions that are being made, the movement of the money to maximize yield, re, re, like avoid fees, et cetera, that's being managed by, some, by somebody or something. And in right. our case, it should, our technology should be doing that. Yeah, sure. If you're super rich, you're going to be right. As you said, you're going to have a business manager, a CFO, whatever it is, doing these things for you. Regular person, put some technology on top of it. Well, you know what's funny is um, 
elderly people, folks who are sick, folks who travel a lot, have what's called a daily money manager. This is an actual profession. And these are folks who are paid by the hour to collect your mail, pay your bills on time, make sure that you're not running behind, talk to the bank on your behalf. This exists as a profession. Nobody's ever digitized it, and that's part of what we're trying to do. Mm, that's cool. Uh, big fan, Paul. This is cool hearing about this. So, like the lat, let's this. We're gonna get into the wrap up of the conversation. Two questions. The first one's on advice. You're talking. You know, you you your your dad kind of laid out a nice career path for you. Like, go get some technical skills, and then go work for a company, and kind of carve out your path. Uh, what do you tell someone today that's like graduating from school? doesn't know what they want to do. Maybe they've got a startup bug. Do you, do you say go do the startup or go work for a big company? You know, what are your thoughts there? Um, I'm really apprehensive to give direct advice on do this or do that. I think to myself, if I had started a company right out of college, I, it probably would have failed. And that's just me. Um, I don't think I would have had a good enough idea that I could have executed well enough to get through. Um, I think back now, I started Cushion after a decade of experience in the Valley, and I'm using every single skill I've ever had uh, to get the company to where it's at today. Um, so I would say if you have a phenomenal idea, the nice thing is that if you're young, you just graduated college, you have a couple of at-bats. So it, you can go out there, fail, you'll learn a lot very quickly, and then you can go try again. Um, the route that I took for me was very methodical. I was like, I'll work at a medium-sized company, I'll work at a startup, I'll work at a company in hyper-growth, I'll see all aspects of it, I'll learn, 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 so that when I start a company, I'm going to make a ton of mistakes, but far fewer than I would have if I just started one right out of college. Yeah, you're right. That's, that's a deliberate approach. Yep. I appreciate that. So last question. Should be a layup. A lot of listeners to this podcast, they're hungry, young, hardworking people working tech, finance, in business school, whatever it is. Um, we always talk about providing value to people. <laughs> How can the listeners provide value to you? Um, I'd love for them to try the service and just give us very honest feedback. Um, at the end of the day, we're a consumer-centric company. We're, even when we talk about partnerships with banks, et cetera, we're pro-consumer all the way through. And even the way we make money is value-based. If we don't add value, we don't charge you. And so we just want to make sure that what we're building is what people want and is truly adding value. And when it's not, we want our customers to call us out and help us build a better company. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's the marching orders. Paul, this was Cool speaking with you. Thanks for having me, Alex. It was fun. Yeah. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening today. Let me know what you think. Leave us a review on iTunes, please, and tell your friends about this podcast. Thanks.